So good morning. I'm going to have you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And uh, if you want to just use a pew Bible right there on the chair in front of you, uh, it is on page 887. We've been in the Gospel of John week in and week out. We just started it. And my prayer, saying this just about every week, is that as, as you encounter the book, you'll encounter the person. It's every Sunday, but it's, it's Resurrection Sunday. And so it's probably appropriate to say, hey, at as believers, as Christians, our most radical claim, our most revolutionary claim, is of course resurrection. Uh, let, let's put it simply. The Son of God became a man, a person like you and me. His name is Jesus. He did this so that He could represent us and be the champion who stands in our place. And after a ministry showing His messianic credentials, Things like signs and demonstrations and healings and so on. He was killed. It was a brutal affair. The trumped up charges, torture, crucifixion. And then he was buried in a tomb that was sealed with a boulder and guarded by soldiers. And in three days, resurrection. That's the claim. Now, if this didn't happen, you needn't bother I mean, I'm glad you're here. It makes me feel better. But if, if it didn't happen, no resurrection from the dead, you needn't bother with Christ or Christianity. But if it did, well, you've got something to consider then, right? So let's look at our passage. It's John chapter 2, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, And the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name whenever they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, in this moment, I ask for grace uh, to think and speak clearly, that uh, as this is your word, that we will have eyes open and hearts open to receive it. For your glory and for our joy, because he's risen, he's risen indeed. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here's basically the framework that I want to work from this morning. It's four things that we ought to highlight from the passage and uh, one way you ought to respond to it. So four and one, four ways, four things to highlight out of this passage and and one way to respond to it. So four, four highlights. 
The first one is in verse 13, and it's the timing. So he says there, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Um, people are said to go up to Jerusalem for basically two reasons. One was the elevation. Right? Jer- Jerusalem is set on a hill, and so uh, you, you go to a higher ele- ele- elevation. If I can get that word out, you go to a higher elevation. And as you make your way, you're going up, right? So in the book of Psalms, there were particular psalms, songs, that if someone would make a pilgrimage, they were called songs of ascension. About the time you would take about a half mile up, you would start and you would sing these songs to the Lord as you were approaching the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. So in that sense, you go up to Jerusalem. In other sense, you'd go up to Jerusalem because it was the capital city, right? that the place, just as People are said, wherever you are in Britain, if you go to London, you're going up to London. It's the city. And Jerusalem was the city, the city. Also, John, the author of this gospel, records a lot of Jewish festivals. He was a Jewish man himself, and and he takes meticulous care to make sure that he highlights these different holidays and celebrations and so on, including... Passover, a lot of Passovers. There's at least three, maybe four, and one of them is here in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. That was the occasion. So they're going up to Jerusalem, and the reason they're going up to Jerusalem is they're going to celebrate Passover. Now, something that people did every year, uh, not without coincidence, about this time of year. Okay, uh, What was Passover? Well, you remember Exodus... Uh, It was a commemoration of that. God had delivered His people from slavery. The angel of death passed over the homes of people whose doorways were covered with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, just like God had described. Uh, You know, He directed them to do this, and they were saved from God's wrath, and they were delivered from their oppressors. And every year, uh, they would observe this. They would remember this. And in remembering, they would remember who they were and remember who God is. Ah, this is our God who led us out. We're His people because He's delivered us. Now, why in the Gospel of John is it significant? Why does He point to that? It's not the most blunt thing He's doing, but it's the timing here. Uh, We'll notice that Jesus is going to refer to His death and resurrection. But His person and His death and His resurrection fulfill a lot of things. But one of the things that the Bible says is that it fulfills this. It fulfills Passover. It's not the least bit of significance, not the lowest amount of significance that they're going to observe Passover where they remember how God had delivered them, but there's going to be a lamb who comes who's ultimate, whose blood will be the way you're saved. If you believe in this lamb, like the Passover, you'll be saved by his blood. So the first thing is the timing. The second is the violence. Uh, I put that in quotation Marks, you know, I, I did that because it might not be exactly what you think. Maybe it's better to call it the disruption. But obviously, you know, it's not that it's the kind of thing that would draw attention. What do you see here? Uh, Jesus observes when he goes to the temple that in this area uh, they're selling animals, oxen and sheep and pigeons. They're doing that for sacrifice and that sort of thing. When he sees it, uh, he drives them out. And he turns over a table and stuff like that. And that, that'd be something, you know, that probably if your mom saw that, she would say, I, I thought I raised you better, right? You just don't go in and do something like that. 
But there's more going on than what we would see, what would make him do, respond that way. Some people think that what Jesus is doing when he drives the animals out and he turns over the table, that what he's doing is he's seeing corruption. Like, oh, this is bad. This is, we got to address this and we got to make the system better. I just point out that selling animals wasn't necessarily a bad thing. A lot of people made the pilgrimage. They make the pilgrimage, uh, the pilgrimage from a long distance away. And so to be able to go into Jerusalem and buy an animal there as opposed to bring your own and drive it, um, you know, all that, that entire distance was a really nice convenience. You just make the pilgrimage, purchase an animal there, and it was much better. So that wasn't the problem. And even the changing money wasn't the problem. I, it was a, not necessarily a bad thing. People paid the temple tax, is what it was called, and you needed to pay, if you were an observant Jew, uh, in a particular coinage. They called it the Tyrian uh, coinage, and the reason is that it was recognized for its pure value. But you might live in a different place, and they didn't exchange that kind of coin, right? You had a different kind of silver that you did, and so what, what would you do? Well, you would go and you would exchange, you would convert the money you had you know, into this Tyrian coin, uh, obviously for a transactional fee, but people don't do something for nothing in uh, most cases, right? And so you had this transaction fee. Was that, was that what he was addressing? Well, no. I, it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to be, oh, they were selling animals or that there were money changers there. Or any, well, what's the problem? You know, it's the very first thing he says, in the temple he found this going on. It's not so much what they were doing, it's where they were doing it. The, the area that they were operating in would have been called the court of the Gentiles. It was devoted for something. It was devoted for people um, to pray and worship, even if they weren't themselves observant Jews, there was a place for them. And they could worship and pray from there. You know, even outsiders, we might say. Well, a marketplace is fine in a marketplace, but not here. Uh, this is God's house. Jesus would say it this way, this is my Father's house. It's a place of worship even for Gentiles. Uh, it's not a business, so making money is fine, but making money here is not fine. Uh, it's designed for something else, that my Father's house is not for this. And so what does he do? He, ma- he makes a whip of cords. That word cords is kind of an important little detail there. And so Jesus makes it. You notice that, that he puts it together, he makes this whip of cords. So it's probably something that he can put together based on what he has at hand. So think between two things. It's, it's not like arts and crafts in VBS where Jesus is looking around what's going on in the church and he goes, well, here's some macaroni, some Elmer's glue, and some yarn. You know, I'm going to go from there. Probably a little more than that, all right? But, I, I mean, he, he made it on hand, uh, out of some cords, and so it's probably not a honed weapon of war either, so somewhere in between. If you've ever worked with livestock and had to drive livestock, you don't always need something like that, but sometimes it's helpful. And so if you've ever done that, you get the reason. So it's not so much whipping the people, but driving out the animals. You know, who in here trying to start a riot? Like, like I'll give you an example. There was a time I was a little kid, about six years old, living in Hominy, Oklahoma. My, this was, there, there was a time when digital was not. So that like you live, kids, you live in a day and age where there's always stuff to do. There's more things to do than you can put into your brain. I lived in a time, I grew up in a time where it wasn't like that. There were soap operas 
on during the day and only on like three channels, okay? And so what you had to do, I mean, this is obviously in these archaic times, you had to find ways to entertain yourself. I mean, it was horrible back then, right? You know, people just didn't do it for you. But anyway, my brother, this was in the summertime, and both of our folks worked, and uh, he had a friend over, and they were playing a board game. My brother uh, was and is three years older than me, a lot bigger too. And so he had his friend over, and he didn't want his little brother around bothering him like I would be a bother. I mean, he's a poor judge of character, my brother. But anyway, they were playing this board game, and I wanted to play so bad because, as I referenced, there was nothing to do. I know hominy seems like a hotbed of activity, but it wasn't. You know, you mow the grass, play outside, whatever, but I wanted to join the game, and my brother wouldn't let me. And so they were playing, they were playing, and i tell you what I did. I saw the injustice there, and... And I was incensed, and I kicked that board as hard as I could, and everything went flying, and it showed, and, and I ran. I ran really fast. <laughs> so what Jesus did was like that, but way more mature, okay? <laughs> we'll see that. But So what, what he's doing is he sees all this transaction going on, and he disrupts that. And part of the passage is about these different perspectives that people have on it. The Jewish authorities, we're going to see it in the next little part. But their response is basically, you know, who's this guy I think he is? I mean, we've got an operation going here. Takes a little bit of energy and organization to run something like this. And here he is disrupting all of that. Who's, I mean, he might be somebody. And if he is somebody, if he is, you know, performing signs or something like this, maybe we should pay attention. But by and large, who does this guy I think he is? The disciples have a perspective. Verse 17, they think of a psalm. That's what's cited there. Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house consumes me. And what they're probably emphasizing there is the zeal, and that's more and less the consumption. Because there is zeal there for the worship of God, but the consumption that's going to go on is going to be a cross. So there's a little shadow there overlooming. What's your perspective? And you think about this. Jesus walks in, uh, evidently not invited, and he runs all these animals out, drives these animals out, turns over tables and tells them that they hadn't ought to be doing what they're doing. And what do you think? Do you think he should have done that? I mean, you know, he's got the Son of God thing going for him, right? So give him the benefit of the doubt. But there are a lot of people who just say, I, I think that's over the top. I mean, that's their first impulse. I think that's kind of over the top. Like, dude, be, be kind of cool, right? Just lower it down a notch. Uh, use your words, right? Uh, you think this is, let me put it this way. Do you think it's rude what Jesus did? Well, let's talk about Jesus' perspective because they're the Jewish authorities, and they had a responsibility there. There's, there's no doubt about that. And there is disciples, and there's maybe what we'd think at first blush, then there's Jesus. Let me point out something that he says. Whose house is that? This is my father's house. What are you doing in my father's house uh, is something you ought to think about. Where you are. It is a privilege that he lives in this neighborhood. Have you met you? Right? That he would put his house right here. It says something about the kind of God he is. What you're doing here is not what it's for. Let me ask you, just a question, maybe it'll help you get a little perspective. 
So uh, many of you have a, a nice house or whatever, but you like your, you like your space. It's Montana after all, and so you, you don't want people up in your business, rightly, rightfully so. But you got your space, you own the land, et cetera, et cetera, right? What would you do if, you know, every day, especially on certain holidays, people are out there and they're selling livestock in your front yard, right? There's cattle and sheep and birds, uh, and they're making noise, and they're right, they've got... What would you, is there anything wrong with that? Well, it's not what they're doing is where they're doing it, not in your front yard. It is rude. It's rude of them. I mean, it's also the kind of thing that shows that whatever else they believe, they don't really believe that God's present there or respect that um, because God isn't the kind of person you mess with, especially on his turf, if you believe he's actually there. So there's the so-called violence, the disruption. Right? The third thing. Is the sign. Out of this, uh, they demand, like, you know, who are you to do this? And so the sign is the raising the temple after it's been destroyed. What they do is it, it says the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Listen, you messed everything up. You disrupted everything. What's your basis for doing that? Who do you think you are? Now, uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's be fair to these guys. They were uh, authorities there, and they had uh, an, an obligation. They, this was part of their job, to make sure that they checked stuff like this out, and they should be vetting it. But what they're really asking is, like, we need some kind of an, in, uh, an indication that what you did, you have the right to do. Now, when they demand a sign, like them responding because this is their area of responsibility, not a problem. Them demanding a sign probably is a problem. What they mean is, okay, here's this big disruption. By what authority do you do it? Not a problem. Show us something powerful, like uh, do the magic, do a big show, right? Uh, let us see some big thing. Now, Jesus has already indicated on part, what basis does he do this? This is his father's house. Listen, sure, you guys are the managers, uh, but I'm the owner. There's a difference. But he he also answers them this way. He offers to give them a sign like they demanded. So what Jesus says in verse 19 is this. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's, that's the sign. They say give us a sign. Give us some kind of a powerful demonstration that you have the right to do this. And his answer is destroy this temple and in three days, pretty specific, in three days I will raise it up. And then John records, this is what they think Jesus means, and this is what he actually means. What they think Jesus means is the building temple. And they respond that way. Listen, it took us years. It took us over four decades to put this thing together. We destroy it, and you're going to, you, a single you, are going to put it all back together in three days. The disciples noted what he really meant, what he actually means, is not the building temple, but his body temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. But as an aside, which is harder, the building temple or the body temple? A uh, little hint. I mean, they're both hard, okay? little hint, though, it's not the one with the big rocks. It's hard to undead somebody. So the disciples, they, they remember this interaction in verse 22, and they connect the dots, calling the shot. Now, as a sports fan, I've always been fascinated by this. I've never played sports and different things like this. I never had the confidence to say, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it. So baseball season has started, and one of the most 
epic, legendary, call your shot was Babe Ruth in a World Series. And there's some debate over this, but he's, you know, he points. I think they were playing the Cubs. He points like he's going to hit a home run, and then he hits a home run. Like, points, calls his shot. Or uh, Larry Bird was legendary for this. I mean, probably because he was so good, he got bored just playing ordinary people. And so there's story after story about Larry Bird saying, you know, it's at the end of the game. I'm going to catch the ball right here. I'm going to shoot it in your face, and we're going to win the game. Makes it harder. Both of those things are possible. I mean, Babe Ruth was good. Makes, makes it harder, but to call a shot and say, I'm going to hit a dinger. Or Larry Bird to say, hey, I'm going to catch the ball right here. You guard me however you want, and I'm going to win the game. I'm just going to shoot it in your face. It's, it's possible. It's harder, but it's possible. Jesus is calling his shot here, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's impossible. So they believe, the disciples go on to believe, partly because of the power, only God can overcome death, but partly because of the plan. I mean, it wasn't a counteroffensive on God's part. It was the mission all along to defeat death on your behalf should you believe in Jesus. So don't you get whenever they're talking about a sign, they demand a sign. What Jesus offers them is not the old, you know, quarter behind the ear trick. Ha-ha, right? little nifty uh, maneuvering of the fingers. It's kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead, and that's your sign. That's a pretty good sign, right? And three days later, I'll do it. All right, last thing on this, last thing that we'll feature is the inconstancy. It's a big word. It means all over the place, right? Inconstancy. It shows up at the end. It's, it says kind of a little epilogue to this passage. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So you notice that Jesus was evidently, quote, doing signs. In other words, there were these powerful demonstrations showing his messianic credentials, and it must have been pretty impressive because what it says is that many people believed. Like they're watching who he is and how he's interacting. People observe that, and whenever they observe, they believe. That's nice. Probably pretty affirming. But Jesus is savvy to people. It ends by saying uh, that he doesn't receive it that way. As this probably goes along with being divine. And uh, then also kind of considering the source, if you came to die for these people because their sin is so pervasive, that they're probably not people to be trusted right? They can be up and down. They're stoked about him, but he knows they're not going to stay there, in part because the signs in and of themselves are not enough, and certainly not with the way that we tend to be all over the place with our happinesses and our hopes and that sort of thing. Oh, it's this, and then this, and then this, and we're, we're all over the place. And what the passage indicates is that maybe people like us would, should see ourselves in a passage like this, is that... Um, it's a big heart problem. Verses 24 and 25 says, But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and knew what was in man. It's the inconstancy, the all over the placidness that we all deal with, right? Your hope is in one place and then it, it's in another. So, all right, four things to highlight. The timing there at Passover, uh, the, the violence, so-called the violence, the disruption uh, to, to point out real uh, worship and what it's going to require, the sign where Jesus calls his shot, uh, death, destruction of that temple, burial, three-day uh, resurrection, and the inconstancy, the people problem. 
So four things to highlight. One thing to one way to re- respond, and here it is. Believe in Jesus. Okay. Now I get it. That's you show up to church and you go. Well, th- that's what guys like you always say, right? I mean, we show up to church and you go. All right. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe in Jesus. You're like, yeah. I mean, but that's all the time. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Right? Why do we always say that? This is always the thing you need to do, because there is. I mean, there's Jesus and there's no other hope, right? So if I'm going to just be intellectually honest, I'm going to tell you what I think the very best thing you should do is, based on Scripture, it's going to be believe in Jesus and trust yourself to the one who can carry you through. John 1, 12 and 13. Not everybody received him, but to to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What's your way through? Believe in Jesus. Now, why? Let me, let me answer this in two parts and we'll wrap up. The first part is that it's truth. Uh, this is an important point to make in a world that grapples with this. And I can't say everything, but I'll point out a couple of things. There's a kind of modern skepticism uh, that lingers around. I say this about every year, almost every time I talk about resurrection, is that the vibe that you get from people who don't believe in Christ and you know, or trying to maybe search it through, is they, they come across the concept of resurrection and they say, I mean, I don't want to offend you if they're being nice, but, you know, it's not the kind of thing that happens. People don't just rise from the dead. I, I mean, it feels like it's, it's kind of wishful thinking or something like this, but this isn't the kind of thing that people do. They don't just rise from the dead. Now, right, that's kind of the point, right? I mean, the, in other words, I want you to frame this properly. The Christian argument is not... Resurrection is possible. It happens all the time. It's, there's resurrection here, there, and everywhere. And so Jesus had a resurrection like all those other resurrections that you know about, and we want you to believe in his resurrection too. It's common. It's easy to believe. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that's the point that we, we agree whenever you go, resurrection? Is that even possible? That seems impossible. Right. We agree. That never happens. That's why we highlight it. I mean, that's why it's a thing, right? It can't happen, especially after three days. There's no way under the natural order of things that somebody is going to rise from the dead. It's impossible. So if it does happen, maybe, I don't know, observe. You know, mark it. It's an act of God, and acts of God have great purpose. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus is. It's an act of God that accomplishes a victory for us. So when we hear, well, it can't happen or it's impossible, we say, well, right, that's the point. Because Jesus actually came to answer what for us is impossible. That thing that tyrannizes you, there's an answer, and it's in Jesus. Um, God has done something great here, and so you should come and believe. Another part of this is the empty tomb. There's a again, with a modern doubt on this, is there are a lot of things that people over the years have said, I don't know that the resurrection of Jesus happened. And, I mean, there are good, long conversations that we could have about that. Um, But a, a lot of them come back to these ideas that just simply can't be true. They're just not good arguments. So one of those is, I'll put it like this, a lot of those are resolved as easily as saying the tomb is empty because it's verifiable that it's empty. For example, somebody, uh, or one argument is this, they'll say, I I hear about the resurrection of Jesus, and I think it's a made-up story. 
made-up story. That's what they were doing. Well, a couple of things there. Uh, but one, there's an answer to that. If it was made up, what would you do? You would direct people to the tomb where there's a body there and say, see, showed you. Or they said, um, well, I think the disciples were, you know, good-hearted about it, but they went, to the wrong, they went to the wrong tomb. They went to an empty one. They were mistaken about it. Well, okay, how do you answer that? It's really easy to do. Take them to the right tomb. You know, the one with the dead body in it. The problem with all of this is that the tomb was and is empty. I mean, that's a historical reality. Um, so some say, well, you know, uh, this or that, but believers who saw him, and I, I want you to calculate this. Would you die for a ruse? The believers who saw him after he was raised, they were willing to die for him, for that, that witness. Now, listen, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't know how brave I am. I really don't. It's okay, you don't, you don't know how brave you are either, but untested people don't really know their character. And so, but, but here's what I'd tell you. I don't know if I have what it takes to even die for what's true, but I sure wouldn't die for a lie. I sure wouldn't die for, and I doubt I could convince about 12 to 100 to 500 other people to do that with me. So they saw this, and they put their lives on the line for it. This happened, the resurrection, and what it accomplishes is truth in a world desperate for it. Okay, second, why, why believe in Jesus? It's true, right? But here's the second. Here's where it gets personal. It's because by God's grace, the power of the resurrection can be appropriated by faith. In other words, this powerful demonstration of life, of who Jesus is and what He's done, you can appropriate this. This is the good news of the gospel, right? Uh, lots of ways that we could talk about it, but one of these shows up later in the gospel of John. It's, in a, it's among a certain family in John 11, and Jesus is interacting with a lady named Martha. Now, one of the things that I like about Martha, people bag on her all the time, but she says what she thinks, right? And one of those things, and Jesus... You know, it doesn't seem to have too big. Uh, Jesus is big enough to deal with people like Martha. So anyway, here's the problem. Uh, Lazarus is her brother, and Lazarus died. It's devastating to them. There's uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so her brother died. And it seemed like Jesus sort of dragged his feet, you know, like when, uh, when you're going somewhere and you tell a family member, like, hey, we're going, and they never, like, leave and get in the car on time or whatever, except this is life or death. And so when Jesus finally shows up to the little place they live, a little place called Bethany, Martha sees him and she's upset. And she's trying to be respectful and everything, but she says it in a way where, you know, everybody's mourning and Lazarus died. And when she talks to him, she says, if you had been here, he would not have died. And what she's saying is, you should have been here. I needed you here, and you should have been here. And if you'd been here, it would have made all the difference in the world. And Jesus responds to her this way. Powerful. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I mean, it's quite a claim, right? I am the resurrection and the life? Like, hey, but here's my dead brother. What's your answer? He's dead. There's, what's your answer, Jesus? I'm the resurrection and the life. That's quite a claim, and then he backed it up. 
by rising from the dead, by being the resurrection and the life, right? The, the great thing is the power of what he did can be applied to you where he says, though whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. How do you appropriate this? You entrust yourself to Jesus, the one who can carry you through. So whenever we say, believe in Jesus, and if your impulse is like, yeah, but that's what you always say. It's because it's the thing that we always need to say. It's the thing that we always need to remember. So let me close by this, a, a little word about gospel bluntness to kind of tie it together. Um, every once in a while I have an interaction with people and they'll say, hey, you know, I appreciate what you do uh, and that sort of thing and proclaiming the, the gospel and, you know, being a man of God or a man of cloth and all of that stuff. And I'm like, listen, I, I, I am justified before God just like everybody else. No difference between me and you. But one of the things that they'll probe into is they'll say it like this. You know, guys like you, you're always talking about sin and death. Sin and death. I mean, it seems like uh, you're bringing up the stuff nobody wants to talk about, sin and death, all the time. Hey, here's the good news. Jesus addressed your sin and death, sin and death, sin and death, all the time. Well, a Savior who won't address your danger is not a Savior. And your danger is sin and death. You notice how the people around you don't keep on living? What do you think your big problem is? Oh, not for lack of trying. Don't tell me you've never bought some supplement or decided to turn your life uh, over and change your disciplines and your habits so you can live, I don't know, maybe a decade more. And I mean, gosh, if you make it to 100, congratulations, but I have not met one person who's 100 years old who wants to still be alive. And where's your hope, right? Your danger is sin and death, and if you're a believer, your, your Savior stood in your place and bore your sin on the cross and overcame the grave to defeat death and raise you up with him. So what Jesus says very simply is, just like he said to Martha, this is who I am. Do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. This is who I am. Do you believe this? And of every treasure that I could have in this world, I'll take Jesus. Everyone. Uh, he outlasts all the others that this world has to offer, including you. The good thing is, you can come along too. Okay, let's pray. Father, what a great Savior. Uh, one who was willing to die for people who didn't deserve it and bear our sin. And one with the power to overcome the tyranny of death. And so that we hear the words of Jesus, that he's the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And we celebrate. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.